All right, Marky, we traveled downtown, episode 19. A man of the arts. A man with a lot of Buffalo history. Yeah, we could all learn a lot. And we will today with our guest, Leroy Codwell Johnson. Codwell. <laughs> Codwell. You know, let me tell you something. A lot of people call me Codwell. I don't know because they can't get it right. It's Caldwell. Caldwell. Not Codwell. Not Cartwright, not uh, <laughs> Goodwill, Feel Good, or any of it. It's Caldwell. As you, it's they, probably mispronounced by uh, by my my uh, my grandparents and that, and from Caldwell, C O L W L L to C, it's called C A L L W E L L. But anyway, that's it's not Caldwell. <laughs> Leroy comes uh, from the arts, Marky. He's got a lot to say about the arts, and he's got a lot more that we'll get into. But first, we want to start out where he started, east side of Buffalo. East side started, yes, Jefferson and William Street, the Willow Park Projects. All right, and we went on to Hutch Tech, East High School, Lafayette. Early times in the Buffalo, in your Buffalo career, we'll say. How did you get into the arts, Leroy? Well, I've always been in the arts. I um, I, we got to step back a little bit further yeah. from East. Uh, I went to Catholic school, St. Uh, St. Anne's and St. Bridget's, and then um, on to School 53, okay. the great 53. <laughs> and from there, I went on to um, to Hutch Tech and East then Lafayette. But um, uh, I've been involved in art, or at least drawing in some form, since I was about five years old, or even sooner than that. I've always drawn and uh, I've always been interested in the arts. Uh, it's just only... Um, once I got into high school, actually about 10 years old, I started taking it a little bit more seriously, doing a lot more sketching and, and, and that sort of thing. And then when I got into high school, I didn't take any formalized course, except I did go into tech for uh, architecture and industrial design, which had some elements of uh, art. Um, but it wasn't the type of art that I was interested in. I run into guys that went to Hutch Tech. They have, like, just unique skills. You know, you're like, how did you start this? And they're like, I just took this class at Hutch Tech, and then it was the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, I always try to get the, the uh, architectural part out of me, but I always keep it in. So it was a good thing, the shading and techniques and and the uh, perspective and all that that I learned there was, um, was really good. Uh, and it's stuck with me because at least you know it, even in whether you use it or not. Um Thing that uh, the reason I left Hutch Tech had nothing to do with the school, had more to do with the worst winter of all time <laughs> that, that I thought back in the 60s. It was so cold. You know that Rick song when he talks about Buffalo being so cold? Uh, <laughs> it's well, too damn cold and funky. Too, and that's exactly <laughs> the way it was. That, you know, you got that wind. Uh, this was my first time in high school, and you uh, took the bus downtown. Uh, and got off at Chippewa and Main Street and had to walk those two or three blocks. I said I would never do that again because it was cold walking down Chippewa. <laughs> and then you get into Canisius. Is that is where where do we start our college career here, Leroy? Uh, at Canisius, yeah, um, nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, it was interesting. Canisius was a great experience. Uh, small classes, um, uh, a lot of friends, a lot of friends who. Uh, I knew from high school and from growing up in, around the park, Tony Massiello, Kevin Spitler, those guys, we all kind of grew up together. Um, so it was a, a good experience. And then from there, I went to UB for a year in um, 
architecture and industrial design. And then I went on to Georgetown Law. Wow. And Tony Massiello, huh? That, what, he had a great basketball career, right? Tony doesn't talk about it. One of the greatest of all time. Oh, know, really? You don't want he could ball, huh? It. Oh, my God. I mean, you knew every night Tony was going to serve. <laughs> he was going to serve you every night, you know. So, you know, he's um, – he, he just doesn't really talk. But it, Tony gave it to the best players uh, in the United States in those days. In those days, we were playing All-American every night. Right. And uh, we were playing Bob Lanier, Kelvin Murphy, Spencer Haywood. Kevin Porter, all these different guys from all these different schools. And I bet you every last one of them remembers Tony Masiello. I've heard stories from the old odd that he he ran the old odd. Well, I was there. I'm telling you. You tell (laughs) me. That's it. All right. Yeah, we found an old tape when he opened up the Magnica Center on Clinton. um, And the whole crowd's there, and he comes up, and he – Makes a shot and the crowd goes wild. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, he's good." And a better and a better person than basketball player. That's what we've heard. So, yeah, yeah. So Georgetown, Washington D.C. in the seventies. That's got to be a really interesting time in our country in the nineteen seventies in Georgetown. Talk, then, talk a little about that. Now. Oh yeah, so we're down. I'm down there during that um, Watergate period. Yeah, um, civil rights. Uh, uh, Iran Contra, all kinds of other things. Uh, Marion Barry affair. Uh, it was an interesting time because I, I watched the growth of Washington um, after having gone to Georgetown, and Georgetown was a very competitive uh, school, of course, uh, but it was also tied in socially with uh, the Supreme Court and anything that was going on. They always used Georgetown professors, so they were always uh, around. Uh, Sam Dash with. Uh, Watergate, and um, I got a chance to spend a lot of time on the Hill and just see what was going on nationally. It's a great experience. One of my classmates, Paul Manafort. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, and Podesta and a couple other people. Who oh, were, so you know those guys, huh? Uh, I knew them. You knew them, yeah. yeah. I think they're a little, probably a little different nowadays. <laughs> what hey. is uh, going to Canisius and like getting into uh, Georgetown? Like, Were you just a star student? I'd like to think that. Thank you. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> Kanisha's prepared me well. I mean, because you, you, you knew that you could compete. But, but once you, you got to Georgetown and you saw that there, there were students from all over the country, some of the top, top students from all over the country, I mean, you really had to compete. And um, I think Kanisha did a good job in preparing me for that. Um, I did all right there. So... So you're getting into art in Georgetown? Yeah, I was in art. You know, usually, you know, after working hard and studying and that, you know, you needed a release. So there were a lot of nights when I would I would paint and uh, sort of like what I do now, you know, as a release. So I, I did a lot of uh, painting and created a style back then. My first style was uh, when I was in college was very abstract, um, you know. And uh, what was representative of it was my apartment where I had uh, painted all the rooms and, <laughs> and, and threw paint everywhere and, and figured out a way to uh, put footsteps uh, up the wall. And then <laughs> the ceiling I had a guy holding me upside down while I put footsteps it, on the ceiling, that kind of crazy stuff. Wow. Uh, you got to express yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I, when I got to Georgetown, I, I became more uh, geometric, um, more structured, and then um, I was in kind of a dark period. I, I use a, a lot of blacks, reds, golds, and 
silvers and whites. Now, when you're painting, are you thinking about... I, I'm not a painter. I can't even mm -hmm. trace. But when you're painting, are, do you have an idea and that's that you're putting an idea on a canvas and only you know the idea? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, usually an idea will come to me and uh, I'll, uh, I'll sketch that idea and... Uh, the thing about that is I can almost remember every idea that I have. And then some of them are repeat ideas. Sometimes I'll, I'll say, I ah, know I'm not going to do that. And I'll keep uh, dreaming about that and the colors and whatever. And then, then uh, eventually I'll sketch it. And then some days I'll just, sometimes I'll just forget about the sketch and uh, I'll find it and say, wow, I did this. <laughs> and uh, then I'll, I'll, paint that and uh, get that really out of my repertoire, put it into my repertoire and get it out of my my head. I um, think more people, Marky, should, like he said, the release. You don't always have yeah. to make money at everything. Sometimes you have to no, express no, no, yourself, no. right, Leroy? Right. When, when when you start getting into the serious side of, uh, of art, uh, uh, it kind of takes it in another direction. Because, you know, I like the freedom of, of not thinking about sales and not thinking about shows and all those things and just thinking about uh, getting what's in me out out of me and on canvas. And I do a lot more of that. I, I did a lot of shows last year and I had to stop because I, I had forgotten uh, my energy. I had lost my energy, I should say. And uh, I just needed more time, creative time to think and not worry about uh, producing i never produce for sale right I, I always produce for me you like it you like it don't come to me and ask for a purple canvas to fit with your purple sofa you know because I'm, I'm not <laughs> right. the guy for that you can you know and i had people come by and i just, they want to look at some pieces and that well see, you got something you know pink or something like that for the bathroom i said i'm not a bathroom painter <laughs> and i might have something pink here but i'm not going to paint something pink for you you either buy what's here or, or you don't buy. So, good. <laughs> so, that's got to be really, really, I mean, law law school's not easy. I mean, we're sitting in here, you're you're a lawyer. Le Leroy. Uh, books to the ceiling. In books here, to the ceiling. Uh, yeah. Very mahogany. Is there, like, advice you'd have for somebody who's going out in the legal profession? Uh, anything you could say to them to, you know, guide them forward? Well, the, ex the experience for everybody is just a little different. Um, I think that... Um, uh, if you want to be a good lawyer, I think the first thing is like when you're young, growing up, to be more open as a person, uh, to have more interactions, both intellectual and otherwise, uh, because it's about understanding what people are about and what they want, which really makes, I think, a better lawyer. It also makes a, a better student. Uh, a lot of people are very smart when they're young. They don't open up to anybody. And then they get stuck in a, in, a, in a direction where they end up with a firm and not happy with just being at a firm because they really haven't opened themselves up. Uh, but for me, it's always been to be open for almost everything around. And I think that uh, that's made me a better lawyer. It's made me a better person. Uh, my only advice for young lawyers is that, hey, there's, gonna, there's a lot of law out there. Uh, jump into one thing, use that experience, take it to the next level, and continue taking it to another level. If you want to stick with the firm, fine, that's fine, too. You want to do uh, sole practice, you do that. Uh, if you want to get into a specialty, then get into a firm that has something to do with that. Uh, and, and I don't care if you go in as a volunteer or something. 
the people I've had work for me, they've come in and asked to volunteer. And they've started with me and, and done very well. So there's no really uh, once any successful formula. The best success is really to do exceptionally well in school mm -hmm. because then you're going to get one of those, those uh, primo right. law firm offers. But believe me, you're going to be working 70, 80 hours a week. You have to be inspired for all yeah. these things. And you're going to decide whether after five years, is that what you want to do or not? What, uh, what inspired you and what type of law do you, um, practice now? Like okay. What inspired me was I was, um, I have, uh, two lawyers in my family, two cousins, and, and both of them, um, brought me along from the time that I was, uh, as long as I can remember, uh, they were in Cleveland, Ohio, Lewis and Carl Stokes. They opened up, um, firm Stokes Stokes character and Terry when I was 10 years old and I remember going to the firm and saying wow this is really cool I guess they were nurturing me back in those days uh, but I was fortunate enough to have them as a mentor they always advised me on what I should be doing in school uh, what college to go to you know what law school to go to you know how to what, what kind of job should I take and it's they basically said the same thing I'm saying to you right now right you've traveled the world when you're in georgetown is traveling uh something that you're doing then or is that something that you did later i was traveling then yeah, yeah you were traveling I, then. i was traveling in school um before college before law school uh did a lot of traveling uh and you know I, we've i vacationed in the caribbean and that when i was in school i think when i was in school i also went down to south america um I've always traveled up in Canada throughout the United States, so now I travel more internationally. Mm -hmm. But um, I did a lot of traveling before uh, before I went to law school. And was that inspirational in art and at the time? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. And, and and it was more inspirational in Washington because you had such great museums there. Oh yeah. Uh, I worked right across the street from the National Gallery of Fine Art, so every day I go there for lunch, and uh, go to the Corcoran Gallery and go to the um, Oh, boy, there's just so many. The Smithsonian was across the street from one of my offices. So I was in there every day. And uh, uh, as I said, then the National Gallery of Fine Arts and the African Museum, uh, it's a different one than it is now, but there was another African museum. So, And I was on the board of the um, museum in the city of, of Washington, which is uh, actually one of the museums that I helped found in D.C., so, you know, I was very connected into the museum and to the art uh, world in Washington. Wow. Wow. I mean, a lot of, even in Buffalo, I don't think enough people get out to our art museums. Maybe maybe I'm just hanging around with the wrong people, Leroy, but <laughs> I, I went last last year and I was pretty inspired. I, I enjoyed my time there. And I'm gonna, we're going to, when the weather breaks, we're going to go back, me and the right. wife. Well, it, it's... Um... <clears throat> Most people in the arts will will get involved. If you're in the arts, uh, meaning dance, theater, music, and all that, you kind of interact on on all those various levels, um, and therefore you would probably go to a museum opening or something like that. A lot of people don't unless they they know of the person. You know, I, I mean, it's it's a different person. The more they they think it's more cultured, but you if you if you go to um, a concert, you're I think that's your culture. Right. Your culture listening to radio, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, but um, going to a museum is something special. Uh, going to, well, we have one of the great museums here, two of the great museums. You have um, the Albright and you have the Birchfield. Right. And Birchfield has been very um, 
they've been behind a lot that from my beginning of my career here to now. So um, it's they played a strong part in helping to promote me and to uh, to work with me. You graduate from Georgetown, and do you hit the ground running? Like that's a great school. So you're just, are you just right to the workforce? Well, no, no, I didn't. Let, let me let me tell you this is what happened. Uh, when I was at Georgetown, they had these um, uh, uh, these uh, community oriented programs. These um, I forget what they call them. I'm losing the name for it. But one of the courses was um, we had both street law and another a course i forget the name of it but in that course we um we developed uh we wrote what they called home rule and home rule was the, the gave the, the district of columbia the right to vote and that passed through congress and the president signed it in that and and we developed it out of our class so uh after after i did that actually i went to europe for a year europe and uh the caribbean uh, I want to take uh, some time off, and I kept getting these calls from my uh, my professor of that course. Hey, I got a job for you. Come back, blah blah blah. You know, and I'm yeah. like, uh, I really haven't found myself yet. You know, I'm, I'm floating around <laughs> Europe, yeah, uh, with a, you know, mm. living in uh, a dollar a day uh, flea bag hotel and enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're not cold. <laughs> so. Eventually, uh, he convinced me to come back, and I got an executive position. Matter of fact, everybody in that in that um, in that class turned out to be the executives in the very first District of Columbia government. So I I was heading up uh, the legislative branch of economic development and employment for the uh, city council. So I got that position, and that kind of uh, pushed me into running um, minority business for the city. And from there, different various uh, administrative judge positions and that. And then all of a sudden, something different in my life happened. I was married and enjoyed and I lost my wife. And after that, I decided enough of Washington. And then you come back home or you're, you're, you're still traveling around? Well, that's when I, I went with my brother. Uh, that was in um, 1981. You you get a phone call and you you got a part you got a gig. Yeah, well, it was funny that they were um, the record company. Uh, was working with the mayor's office to to transition me out of the government. Okay. Um, and um, I mean, my brother, of course, is Rick James. So, <laughs> um, but he was blowing up so big that they wanted uh, somebody who could work with him and attempt to control him somewhat which is <laughs> no way but at least you know I, I i was there to do the best that i could do uh but they uh motown and some of their executives were very close with some of the executives in washington and they were kind of convincing me to take that position and um at first i uh, was hesitant because you know i had a great marriage i lost my wife she mm -hmm. passed so after that i really didn't want to stay in Washington. I said, well, this is a good opportunity to get out of Washington. Right. So I went with Rick. And what, what was, what was the first thing that you, was it a business side? Was it a, was it right to the tour bus? Um, right to the tour bus, but the, uh, we went right into um, pre tour planning. So I got a chance to, um, we were actually working on, a, on street songs album. Great so album. I went out to um, uh, to San Francisco 
um, learned that aspect of it, worked with the, the record company on understanding contracts and the rest, and all of it was prepped to take over. Um, so I did the pre-tour work, which uh, worked with uh, Gross Schumann and Al Heyman, a bunch of people planning the tour, and Dick Romer, uh, our accountant and the rest. Did a great job learning all the different aspects of what we needed to do before we even got out on the road and learn the people that we were going to be working with and, and um, started making some decisions about uh, about how effective the business was running. Because, you know, I, I came from the government. I was running minority business. And part of what we did is we analyzed the business to determine whether the business was um, – a good fit with the government. So I had, I had that, that kind of experience going in. That's mm -hmm. what I did. I analyzed businesses and um, uh, did the same thing with Rick when I first came in, just to see how much it costs to put everything together, how much, uh, uh, what were the possibilities of how much money you were going to make, uh, how good were the people who were working, all those kinds of things that you would do in analyzing a business. So it, it's kind of uh, my experience was perfect for coming into that type of business because I understood how to run a business. What law did you practice? Well, you, you, um, I was on the legislative side. What, what you practice on, what you learned in law school had nothing to do with what you do when you get outside. You know, when I got outside, I was thrust into the legislative, into uh, uh, politics, thrust right into it. And the thing is, I didn't have anybody to teach me anything. You know, you had a corporation council who, who this was his first day because it was a brand new government. It changed from a, a commissioner run government that was appointed to an elected government. There was nobody there standing you. When I would go in and talk to the the um, general counsel for the um, for the city council, he would say, man, I don't know. This is everything's new. We got to figure this out ourselves. Yeah. So I was figuring out everything for myself, figuring out how to draft legislation, uh, how to deal with community groups, uh, uh, how to deal with all the agencies, deal with budgets, the whole thing, you know. So when you go over and with your brother, you're doing the same thing. I'm you're, doing the same you're thing. You're making a different structure. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, I went from that as a in, on the legislative side to the executive side, where um, I was actually running minority business, determining who was going to be doing business as minority uh, for the city. So during that time, there was a lot of scandals going on about who was minority, who wasn't minority, that kind of thing. So um, <clears throat> that was a great experience for going into work with uh, Rick. So you get you get into the the Rick James. Uh, I don't know what would you call it experience. That's a good. One. <laughs> <laughs> it was an experience. What What's the auditorium paying back then? What are you getting for a good arena show? Well, that was that was interesting because when I got there, the first thing that I looked at was, okay, how much are we getting paid? How much um, how much is being made first? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and 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 that's a very simple answer. You look at the number of people there and what they're charging. I want to know what the gross is, because if if I'm selling out, I have just one simple rule, you know, the minimum I'm going to take is fifty percent out of here. Sure. But we were taking a lot less than that. We were getting a lot less than that. So one of the things I did change, I'm happy about, is I changed that uh, that formula. And it, your experience coming from Washington, yeah. it, it helped right. you with that. Oh, That's yeah. great. I'm like, okay, if we're if uh, if I'm playing a venue and this venue is making a quarter of a million dollars, why am I making fifteen thousand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
you know, this changes tonight. And I remember a quote from uh, uh, the promoter that uh, I put my name out there. I said, and take your ass out there and get on stage there and see how many people show up. <laughs> so I said, well, you can either come out here. I'm not asking you for anything. This is what we're going to take. If you want to get whatever else money, you get this that out of whatever else you're supposed to do. And I'm sure you can still make out of 50% some money. Good for but, you. Uh, from here on, this is what it is. And plus, you're going to be paying for sound and lights and some of the other things. Now, is word getting around the country that uh, oh, yeah. Rick James management ain't fucking around? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had, uh, I had a lot of incidents on the road. Um with merchandise, because I started running merchandise, and the first thing was that no one thought that uh, black merchandise was worth anything. I said, but we're, we're playing venues with uh, anywhere from 10,000. We even played 115,000, yeah. 120,000. I said, you're telling me we can't sell any venues? So let the, we can't sell any merchandise? So I created um, merchandise, sellable merchandise. It was easy to do. All you have to do is look at what the rock and rollers were doing, you sure. know. Just uh, so we got T-shirts, programs. Got rid of the stupid stuff that we were selling. We weren't making any money because they're selling fingers. And when you're selling well, like fingers, we're number one. Yeah, those yeah. fingers. And and those fingers actually giving you the finger, right? Because if you if you put five hundred of those fingers together, it would fill one truck. I could take a box of programs and make more money on a box of programs that was twelve inches high. Yeah. And I could on a truck full of fingers. So I got rid of the fingers and got rid of the person who was selling the fingers. Because if this is what you're talking about, then we don't even need you. So it, we did that. We did uh, T-shirts. And we were actually making more money on merchandise than Rick was making on his guarantee. Really? Yes. That's a lot of T-shirts. So that changed a lot of things. Well, I mean, in, in certain markets, you could tell the economy of certain markets based on how many t-shirts and what you what we made in mer uh, merchandise that night. Uh, California was always strong. The second strongest would have been your Texas area, followed by um, uh, the South, uh, the Carolinas and that. And then then the, the, the lowest was in the Northeast. And in the Northeast, you have to remember, they were all depressed during that time. Mm -hmm. So we had all these businesses uh, 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 going in North Carolina, and you had to... Uh, aviation in California and, and other things going on in Texas. And uh, our merchandise reflected what how strong the country was in there. And as things changed in the country, the, the, the amounts of money that we made started changing, but although we still made substantial, but it wasn't on the same level. So you can tell like when, when the, um, the clothing started and furniture started going down in North Carolina, the dollars went down. The last thing people cut out, though, is entertainment. And right. the same thing when, when aviation with um, Hughes Aircraft and the others in California start going down, then you could see those numbers go down. Um, so it was really gave you a perspective of what was going on in the country. Um, uh, entertainment did. And the band, the Rick and the Stone City Band, where are we based out of at that time? I, I, we're, we're right around early 80s at this time, right? Uh Late 70s, Late early 70s. 80s. We're still based out of Buffalo. And what, All where, the touring started out of Buffalo. Okay, and where are we running shop out of Buffalo? Because a lot of people don't know this about Yeah, Rick. well, we, um, 
Pierce Arrow? This Pierce is connected. Arrow? Well, this okay. is all connected. We, yeah. We've had a lot of people talk about the Arrow. Okay, Pierce Arrow. We're running out of there. Uh, that's where we had our staging equipment. That's where we did our rehearsals and, and that sort of thing. Um, that would be the main place for during the, during the uh, late 70s and 80s, uh, actually early 80s, until we stopped. It was Pierce Arrow. Wow. And... What's the favorite place? Where where does Rick want to go to most? Los Angeles? Is there talk that well we got to get out of Buffalo eventually? Where are we going to go next? Well, we tried that. We um, um, Buffalo is just such a great city for us for uh, for planning and for um, musicians and everything that we needed was right here. That um, you know we moved out to L.A. and then turned right back around and came right back here. Yeah, we did that a couple times and. Uh, so what percentage of people that were working for Rick were from Buffalo? I know more than half. That's amazing. Like more than that, half. So that's loyalty a lot of the times, oh, too. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Rick was very loyal to Buffalo and very um, uh, very loyal to the people here in Buffalo. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't yeah. talk about yes. is just loyalty you know, to We, we to use people. our engineers, and, and even if we didn't, we brought people in to work in Buffalo, and some of them stayed early 80s the talk has been that prince got thrown off the rolling stones tour so i don't know if this is true and rick saved his ass and brought him to play with him and open up for him is this true well the timing i'm not exactly sure he did uh, prince was with them i'm, I'm not following prince mm. You know, yeah. but Prince uh, was thrown off our tour also. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, Prince was developing himself as an artist. So uh, he just happened to develop himself by stealing a lot of our acts and that, mm -hmm. a lot of what we did, and, and Rick didn't like it. But you shouldn't, you know. I mean, how are you going to perform your act? You, Rick, uh, Prince watched your uh, performance, steals half of it, then he performs before you, and now we're coming on doing this our own act that Prince has done just before us, which is our act. You right. know? So, I mean, and he didn't really care. I mean, he just, um, I mean, he stole the stage, same stage production. Whole really? thing. And Rick had to make a lot of people believe in him, right? I mean, Rick was the, Rick was the mastermind behind everything. Don't believe any of this stuff about maybe somebody else wrote such and such. I mean, Rick wrote everything. He could play everything. I mean, some of the musicians say, Bob, up that, uh, you know, Rick wasn't that good. Rick played everything on stage. Yeah, I've and, seen it. And, and played most yeah. of it in studio. So, you know, uh, uh, all that is is some, uh, some musician self-aggrandizing himself about what he could or couldn't do. I mean, Rick could play everything, but he, he gave parts to members of the band who there were signature musicians that we had who, who actually had a signature sound <clears throat> oscar austin um danny lamell uh, a couple of them a few of them had signature sounds when you hear that horn you know that's danny hear that bass thump you, you know that's that's oscar and guitar alan sims on on some of the early stuff and kenny hawkins on some of the others and tom yeah. mcdermott um but you know, to when it, when he wrote it, for the most part, Rick would play a lot of the parts himself, and then he'd have these the guys come in who were actually professionals and may have been better, but that's not to say that Rick wasn't a good musician. Right. I've seen uh, the video from Fire Maid where he gets down on the keys and he kicks ass. Yeah. I well, mean, he stole the show. 
Rick could play horn, harmonica, drums, bass, guitar, keyboard. Was he modest about it, or was he like, I can tear this up, yeah, I like, can no, play no, everything? He was a natural. He was He's a natural. just a natural. Anything he picked up, he could play. Was it church? Like, where was it? No, no, no. Where no, was no, he no. picking up? The only thing up? that was church was uh, Rick was an altar boy for about 15 minutes. <laughs> 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 Before all this stuff was going on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think we both were um, uh, asked to leave the church. <laughs> um the Jesuit college grad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but hear this. I have more Jesuit training than most Jesuits. Uh, grammar school, college, law school. Uh, Franciscan, which is under the Jesuits. Jesuit, Catholic college, Jesuit law school. Jesuit, Jesuit, Jesuit. But, so so how, how is all this music how did it, it come to your family you know well my mother was a catholic and um my friends were catholic and uh, uh so we went to catholic church went to catholic schools catholic schools we were just lucky that catholic schools had the best education and uh you know we went there for education and you are you the music programs the music program no they didn't have any music program I mean, they had actually they did uh, um, if you want to uh count choir Mm-hmm. And we did, both of us were in the choir, and, and the choir was great, you know, because you learned harmonies and all those kinds of things at a very young age. But what really had the most impact, I think, on Rick was um, uh, his experience with the African Culture Center with Malcolm and I, who um, had him involved with um, uh, percussive instruments, the, the Congo, the bongas, and um, also had him uh, chanting. You can hear that a lot in his songs. Yeah. Uh, uh, he took him on a performance tour with him uh, to Chicago and that when he was very young. So that had a, a large impact. But I remember Rick studying uh, trumpet and trombone. Uh, he was the leader, um, um, the drum leader uh, in high school, had been a uh, band leader. And also he was a um, drum leader of the Cold Spring Cadets, featured drummer. So, you know, he had a, a nice background in that. And then when he went off to Canada with... Uh, with Neil Young and Bruce Palmer and that, and um, uh, hanging out with those guys, or playing and performing with them for for a number of years, he picked up bass from Bruce and uh, keyboards and guitar from Stan Andrusby. Uh, uh, performance more probably with Neil because Rick was kind of um, Rick would do anything. We we we've read and we've we listened to some interviews that they were pretty tight. They were pretty tight. Did you have any interaction with, with them up in Canada? Yeah, I did. I, I was up there quite a bit. Yeah? I, I remember taking some friends, and I, I I I went up there a lot. And a lot of guys remind me of things that I, I said, damn, I don't remember. I went, to, I went up there with you. He said, yeah, you went up to I went up to Toronto with you, man. And we hung out. We were playing, uh, actually, soccer with the Stones. <laughs> and, um, and and it was funny because I was uh, I had platform shoes. <laughs> that, that short era, about two weeks when... They were platform shoes, so I was playing with these platform shoes on, and we're playing in the mud, and I lost my heels. So the only thing I had was those stacked fronts of the <laughs> shoes and, and no heels. I couldn't find the heels, you know, because they stuck somewhere in the mud, you know. So I'm walking around on these platforms backwards, you know. It's um, It was, you know, I was up there quite a bit with them. Um, I met all of them, Neil, and, you know, I still stay in touch with Stan. 
Stan Indersby, and I also stay in touch with Stan um, Weissman, his um, his old manager and lawyer up there. You know, we, we talk every now and then. I have an older brother. Like, was he the guy that, you know, smacked you upside the head, or were you the guy that smacked him upside the head? You know, as a- No, there was a mutual thing, because Rick was 11 months older than me. We were as much friends as we were brothers. Uh, he leaned on me for things a lot, you know, because I was more stable. Rick was more, I don't know how you call it, adventurous, I should say. Uh, he, there was no challenge that he would not take. I mean, you just, he would do anything. I learned a lot from that, you know, like uh, when Rick went into Motown, Rick refused to talk to some A&R guy or something like that. Uh, when we went to Motown, he went directly to the president. And we just walked in, look, this is what I have. This is why I say, well, really, there's a problem. No, this is, I'm talking to you. This is what I am. And if you don't like it, then I'll go to another company. I'm sure somebody else will sign. Now, when somebody comes to you like that, that's a lot of gall. Is that and the Buffalo in them, you think? That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right? exactly. I think that's we did get that from Buffalo. That's yeah. great. But that's, uh, great that's the way it was. you know. And I had a kid come in here who was a great artist, uh, and he refused to leave my office until I listened. He just came in unannounced. The best artist since Rick James, but uh, he passed away. But oh. his he was the greatest singer, writer, performer. Demario used to call him Rio, but he did the same thing. He had that same kind of push and drive. I'm gonna make it really, you know. But his life was cut short. So when you're, when do you hear Rick James? Well, you call him. What did you call him when you were a kid? Jim. Jim, that's what I've heard. Everybody yeah. called him Jim, and that's what Neil Neil Young calls him. Like, Jim. so I, I heard Jimmy. S- some people call him Jimmy, but yeah. So yeah. when do you hear him sing for the first time? Is it? Are you waiting to get into the shower or what? Where, where do you hear that voice for the first time? Well, I've heard I've heard the transition from Rick used to always sing background parts for leads, and that's how he developed his style. <clears throat> so. Hearing that, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes this strength in this voice um, from practice. Um, you know, just all of a sudden, everything came together. All these little parts, these little parts in uh, playing here, doing that, performing here with this group and that. Um, then all of a sudden, it, it was a piece. You know, he came back from... Toronto, I think it was about 77, put together some guys, formed a little record company, and put out a song called Get Up and Dance. Marketed himself, and all of that went into um, helping him be the performer and the business person that he was. Now, uh, before that, Rick had had a number of... um, record deals with some major labels so with the great white cane and some of the other groups that he was with which all should have been big groups but for rick it was an experiment and then if things didn't go right they were all signed to major labels uh and all those experiences came into play and he really wanted to be with motown and so when he finally got a package together he thought was the package and he was right uh he went to motown with it and when he gets to motown Who's he? Who's he sitting there talking with? Well, he went in with Suzanne DePass, who um, 
Suzanne was basically a Barry Gordy's right right hand yeah. person, and um, could have gone in to Barry, but I guess now it was more political than anything because you know he had um, with the the song Melinda, uh, which was a very successful song for Bobby Taylor in Vancouver's in the '60s. Um, he had had an interaction because I remember meeting with uh, Marvin and 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 uh, Smokey and Barry. Can you imagine that, in Mark? In the 60s, you know. So. <laughs> You're calling him as a first name. That's great. <laughs> well, hey. Yeah. So <laughs> that, uh, so I guess because Suzanne was um, the person, he sat and let Suzanne listen. And Suzanne said, look, let me, let me roll with this. And she took it in and said, this is going to be a monster. Because Rick's music was a blend of um, rock and roll an R&B and some other out-of-worldly things that were all yeah. in there. It and almost other yeah. worldly turned into of, funk which almost. Which is great. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And what's that phone call like? Like, hey, Leroy, I'm going to Motown. How well, how excited was he? Oh, Rick was very excited. I, I remember telling people, like when I was at Canisius, I took the, uh, some of the team players up to, uh, to uh, Canada and uh, Mike Norwood and Clyde Alexander, some of the guys, we went up there, and uh, Ed Smith. And we're hanging out there with Rick and that. And I said, man, my brother's going to be a star. This is in the 60s. And he's like, <laughs> they're like, there's something wrong with Roy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Wood, as I call him, always says, man, he says, Roy, man, he says, man, when I heard that stuff, man, I said, man, he said, you were so right. He was so right, but I thought you were so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but like then he kept it. He just kept going and pushing kept forward kept going, and just yeah. making it the because thing. he understood the business. And he, um, see, Rick didn't want to be a black artist. You know, he didn't want to just do R and B. Rick wanted to be a pop star, rock and roll. That's where that's he came from. Uh, 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 that Neil Young, Minor Birds, Jimi Hendrix type thing. Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, that was his culture and, you know, he wasn't getting the kind of play that he, he really wanted. And then he turns around and all the guys from his group, uh, are now successful. The Buffalo Springfield, you got, uh, yeah. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, you got, uh, uh, Neil Young, you got all of these guys now who were hanging around with him, Joni Mitchell and the rest. Now they're all. Megastars. And he's like, man, I was the leader of that group. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I'm not a megastar. But now they all are. They and, all are. And wasn't he supposed to be a bassist for some big band and they went in a different direction? I don't know what band. Maybe it was. Maybe it was the Minor Birds. I think. Maybe. maybe it turned out to be Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then Young. Wasn't he kind of hanging around? It was usually. It was first. It was Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, and Palmer. That's what it was at first. Right. And uh, uh, Neil Young. Uh, Bruce Palmer and, and, and David Crosby were all at one time associated with Rick with the minor birds, yeah. you know? So then it was, I think Stefan Stills, um, and then Buffalo Springfield, they did their thing, you know, but Rick had a different name and it was Ricky James Matthews back then. <laughs> right, it was, okay. uh, uh, and it was an interesting time because those guys, Rick was 16, they were 18, 19. Which is a big difference. Yeah, big difference. Back uh, then, too, uh, yeah. You know, And it's interesting how he met him. It's like uh, <clears throat> he walks in. I mean, life is, is, is so interesting. You don't, you never know what's going right. to happen. You know? <laughs> so he's walking down the street, and these two guys are beating up Bruce Palmer. 
Really? You know, so he doesn't know Bruce, but he, you know, he just like didn't like the odds. So he broke up the fight and then jumped in on Bruce's side and Bruce was getting his butt whipped. And so Bruce was like, man, thank you. Yeah, so what are you doing? And he's like, I'm just up here, you know, AWOL. <laughs> <laughs> Don't really have a place. Oh, come on, stay with us. We got a band. What do you do, Rick? Oh, man, I'm a lead singer. Probably never let let. Yeah. It was a lead singer before. So yeah. goes and stays with these guys, and Neil is the singer, I believe. And so uh, Rick takes ends up taking his place because he's wow. got that kind of vibe and energy. You know, it's like uh, it's like Jimi Hendrix type thing. You know, right? And he kind of kind of resembles. He, he had does, like he an aura to him. Yeah, same thing. Same yeah. Thing. And keeping up that persona, like, uh, so you you managed a lot of fan finances, right? I was his manager, total manager, everything. Was there a ceiling for how extraordinary the costumes would be, or was that where the money went? You said, nope. Oh, no, 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 the money didn't go. I mean, we just, everything. We, we, um, we had a tour budget, however, it was a re very realistic tour budget, but Rick got what he wanted. You know, the costumes had to be the costumes, right. and the stage had to be the stage. And that was a big part. Yeah. It's huge back then. Yeah. Right. What a show. Like you right. see some of the things and you were like, they built these light, you know, they built this on the yeah. stage. And he had he had to have three horn players. He had to have three background singers. There were fourteen people on stage. That's crazy. You know, and but the sound that he wanted to do the parts and everything, I mean you had to have that. So he didn't care whether he made a dime or not. This is what he wanted. This is vision. Yeah. And it was almost like they branded themselves like this is what we're gonna wear. This is the way we're going to look. Right. They had the dreads. Was that no, planned the braids, out? The braids. braids. I'm dreads. sorry. Not, I, I'm not sorry. Not it, it, was that a planned thing? It was planned, yes. Yeah. The whole thing was planned. I mean, the, the whole look, the whole, uh, the braids, um, uh, the whole very sexual image, everything was planned out, sketched out and planned. Oh, what a plan. Yeah, yeah what a plan, because yeah. it worked out. Yes. So then we're bouncing around the States. When do you realize, holy shit, we're like a top five artist in the United States? Almost. You know, or was to it be honest with you, I never realized that. Really? I always just tried to do the best that we could do. That's good. I never got caught up in, um, in were we the best or whatever. I assumed that everybody else was doing what I was doing, and I really didn't care what they were doing. I just cared what I was going to do. Right. When I, I looked at the merchandise, and I saw that they weren't doing the merchandise right, I said, this is what the merchandise is going to be. Just looked around and see what everybody else. Went to a few shows with Kiss and Rod Stewart and the others and looked wow. at their merchandise and said, look, hey, we'll just make our merchandise. I'll make it better than theirs. I'll make their merchandise, and then for the venues, you went into the venues. We had a small tour first, and so we knocked out some of the kinks on the small tour, and then we went on a, a, a massive big tour where we played every major venue that every major rock act played. We played Madison Square Garden. We played the Astrodome. We played the Indianapolis Dome. We played the uh, Super Dome. We played uh, Baton Rouge to 120,000 people. We played uh, Jamaica Music Festival. We did every giant stadium. We sold out their veteran stadium, Los Angeles Coliseum. Sold out everywhere. Wow. So yeah, the so an, a, a hiatus of for your art was really a, a dive into business end of yeah. a music career. But, uh, when I was on the road, uh, I had my assistant do certain things every day. 
when I got to a city, I wanted to see what their food was about. I wanted to see their museums. I wanted to see the, the best museum. I wanted to know what that city was known for. And I wanted a gym to work out in. And Smart. every last one of those places, I took tickets, T-shirts, and everything to make sure. And I wanted to make sure, I made sure that every venue that we went to, uh, we exploited the media there. We, we did the uh, uh, newspapers, we did radio and TV. So, I mean, that was my, my plan. We got there at nine, uh, started on my plan, pop, pop, pop. We did them all. And when we left, then we, we were like the Romans. We came in, we conquered, and we left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you hear some stories that some people, you know, you guys really did conquer. You you oh, yeah. you weren't there for a long time. I you can't even talk about time. the stories. I will not well, talk about the no, stories. No, we don't. I don't even. I cannot do that. We don't have a big enough license. No. So, <laughs> so then, you know, then it comes up this thing, and this has really bothered us when we were doing our research, was the MTV. Yeah, that was very big for us. Um. So MP, MTV starts, and, you know, they're, Making people it. rich. They're making yeah. artists. Yeah, well, well there, there are a couple of things going on at that particular time. And um, at, at the time MTV came on, it, it was the only real venue for videos. So MTV took the position that um, uh, this is for rock only. However, they sprinkled in there a couple of people who belonged to Time Warner, which was Prince and uh, one of the others, and they would play them. Uh, but that was one, maybe Michael, they might have played one of Michael's or something. Nothing else. So uh, the companies were going to stop producing videos because there was no outlet, no video outlet. So we had to take a position against MTV on this. And so we went to the megastars of that era, Prince, Michael Jackson, uh, Marvin Gaye, all the megastars, and not one of them. Not one of them came to our side. So we ended up going on MTV and challenging Bob Pittman himself on his policies. And he came with the argument that uh, uh, this is only for rock and roll bands. And we just said, you know, basically that is a, an elitist racist attitude. Uh, so Bob decided that, okay, to stop this whole thing, this whole racist thing, I'm going to form VH1. Oh, really? That's and, how that started? And, and when he formed VH1, it took off and surpassed MTV. He sees that now, and um, they changed the format on MTV. But never did they ever play Rick. So they played Michael, and Michael exploded. They played Prince, the same two who wouldn't do anything, mm -hmm. and he exploded. And we were still big, but just think how big we would have been if— um, Oh, yeah. With MTV. Now, how's Rick? Us. How's Rick dealing with this uh, behind the scenes? I mean, I've seen interviews with him where it really bothered him. It did. It, it, the support bothered us also. That uh, no one came to our. The only one who did was David Bowie. Really, David Bowie and Rick were the only two. David uh, David interviewed in his show. He interviewed Bob Pittman, and he led him right down the the, the Mary Primrose Lane and. <laughs> asked him all these questions about how great it is, how much audience does it reach, and you know how much money they're making, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, well, 
Bob, why don't you play any black acts on MTV? And that stunned him. That stunned him. Because uh, um, black music is music. It's part of rock and roll was formed out of black music. Fuck yeah. You know, and so why, why, why aren't you doing this? And we actually made him more money by forcing him to change. Yeah, he got a whole new channel. Yeah, he got a new channel, but also MTV was able to survive because they changed their format to what we had asked for from the beginning. So it all worked out, but it didn't work out for us uh, because they never played Super Freak and uh, they never played Give It To Me Baby. So when that, that Super Freak video, where does that go? The are you well, sending that out to wherever Rick whatever is going? Whatever venues they were, they weren't, uh, uh, they weren't any major venues for it. Um, it's a good video. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> there were no major venues for it because MTV it, it eventually played on VH1. But um, the Mary Jane Girls, and I'll, I'll give you a tidbit that you, you really love. Okay. The first act to play on MTV, Black Act, was Process and the Durags from Buffalo. And that's Rick Rick. Four and guess who game. opens that video? <laughs> I do. Really? Really? Oh, we got to look for I that. say, uh, uh, it's time to stomp and shout. Do-rags, it's time to st- stomp and shout. So I made MTV and Rick did. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, he, he didn't like that at all. No. <laughs> you know, but that was uh, ironic that uh, that happened. But it, for the most part, um, VH1 opened the door for rap. And um, it opened the door for uh, Michael and Prince because once they start playing, then they put um, Michael and Prince in the mega rotation and all the other artists, Boys to Men and everybody else that came up behind. So they can thank us for it. We, you know, some people acknowledge it. Uh, anybody who's uh, who's been in the business for a long time, they know that. They know They know the MTV story. I don't even know. Is MTV still out there? It, it doesn't play music videos. Whoever's running yeah, that. TV yeah. now, huh? Crack of shit. Or uh, uh, reality TV. Yeah. So during this, talk about the band. Are, who's in charge of the band? If are, are, if you misbehave, are you out? Do you get fined? You, you always hear about those you James know, Brown well, stories, <laughs> finding the band members. Rick is in charge of the band. Yeah. He had a band leader, but Rick is in charge of the band. Right. Uh if you couldn't keep a beat, the drummer, you're out. Mm-hmm. He kicked the drummer out during a show. Really? Cool. Yes. And then what did he do? Get behind her? No. He he went over to Luther Vandross's drummer and said, "Hey, can you play this?" "Yep, you're our drummer." Wow. He was he was a drummer for Change. Went over, you know. So, I mean, if you couldn't keep time, most of those guys could. But and that's just one example. I mean, fired for. I mean, Rick didn't like that. He didn't like that. He couldn't. And he's a he's a drummer. He's listening to you every day, and it just aggravated him. You know, if you miss the beat, then you're not missing a beat. Like I've seen him actually throw a um, a keyboard that wasn't set up right at the tech, <laughs> or a guitar at the tech. You didn't do it right, and fire it right after that. You're out of here. Because he know he's a uh, yeah perfection. You can't have perfect, my show yeah. screwed up because you uh, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, but he gave guys a money. break, and some of the I mean, he gave them um, a, a break to even be with us. To like uh, one of the tech guys now is the probably the one of the biggest tech guys in the business who started with us. 
you know, he started with us, and now all the major shows in the country he's he works with. Wow. You know, Al Heyman, who's the biggest fight promoter, right? Basically yeah. started with us. Really? You know, I mean, we we had him out. He's he's the guy I'm talking about. Who was yeah. telling me about his. I put my name out there. So we'll take your go out there and perform there. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I had to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, it's true. I mean, it's true. A lot of them, and I'm very proud of people who, um, who've gone on to be really successful. Wayne Sharp, who just uh, was one of the biggest sound engineers in the business. He's uh, started as an engineer when he was in college with us. He came in and asked for a volunteer job. Now, you know, you go into um, IMAX theaters and, you know, like those big sounds and all that you hear when you came in. He does all of that. You know, you oh. see Avatar. He does that. He did the, the sound for Avatar. Wow. And Fast and the Furious, you know. Start he's, right over. He's from Buffalo, Grand Island. But, uh, you know, he's now, he started with us. You know, we gave him that break. He wanted to work. Walked in just like Rick did in his own quiet way. And um, now look where he is. If you could tell our listeners, if they're going to pick up one Rick James album, what's the album or what's the song to download on iTunes or whatever? Oh, boy. you got Most of the big ones are on street songs. But um, I would say street songs is the album. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. Give it to me, baby. Um, I think Fire and Desire is on that. Um, uh, super freak, uh, and and probably um, the very first one also because uh, that introduces you to the, the Rick James sound. Uh, come and get it. Uh, that's uh, and then busting out is another. Those early sounds are those are the ones I really love. I, love I was them. listening to them last night yeah. uh, doing laundry, and my wife goes, yeah, was... "Look at you getting ready!" I was dancing all <laughs> yeah. around. I was into it, man, Leroy. Yeah. I I was. Yeah, those are. But every every album had some uh, some great cuts on it. Yeah, I mean, I, mean you know. I I think more. I mean, we get a lot of Buffalo listeners. I think the Buffalo area really has to embrace in. Go into that those deep cuts, those deep tracks, those yeah. B sides that yeah. Rick has. Put your ear to it. And yeah, he's probably talking yeah, even, a lot about you know Buffalo. Yeah, even the Urban Rhapsody, the stuff that he did real late, uh, has some really great songs. Because I mean, if if Rick produced it, it it was going to be innovative and very creative. Uh, Rick's music lasts because it was innovative and creative, and yes. it's still contemporary it still holds up yeah. right it really does. does so uh, i mean that, that has a lot to do with rick has a lot to do with the engineers has a lot to do with the musicians um and the con- con- concepts still work buffalo still cold and funky yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, lo- the loyalty to buffalo you guys always came here lived here yeah i mean there were periods where i i mean um uh, for 20 years i was out in um in washington and los angeles but I still came here and still had a home here also. So Rick was the same. He's back and forth to Los Angeles, but always back back here. The people always good here in Buffalo? Oh, great. The people are great. I mean, uh, I, this is the place where I would most rather be, and this is the place where I am. Oh, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that Buffalo should embrace it more. You were saying that there was a project um, uh, that was going to happen that got squashed. Oh, uh, yeah. There was the um, Elmwood Avenue project. uh you know, I mean, a Buffalo, I always say that one person can screw something up in this town. Um, and and it lasts for, 
forever. Mm-hmm. And one example is uh, the University of Buffalo. They decided to move it out to Amherst. Another one's the auditorium or the stadium. Buffalo made those things great. They haven't done much to enhance those areas. And, and Buffalo would be a much greater city, which it is a great city, but it'd be a much greater city with the university here. That And that project for Rick. I mean, uh, uh, most cities embrace their stars. They don't put in quotes that um, he was uh, did this, he was right. or, or did that. When you when Rick has played in the Super Bowl or you hear his music and that, they don't put that in quote. You hear the music, and that's what makes these people great. That makes uh, Rick great. And you know, even though he's my brother, I I think he's the biggest name ever come out of here. You tell me somebody bigger who ever came out of Buffalo. Nobody, nobody. And yet, yet, uh, um, where is the monument to Rick in this town? Yeah, really. Every other city has monuments to their artists. You know, I mean, the only monument is his gravestone. Yeah, and that's probably the most visited site. Oh, absolutely. But I think that um, I had to throw something out about that damn wall over there on a on a ferry in Michigan, Um, within five block radius of that place, I can name five people who are national people who are not on that wall. Most people on that wall have been honored a thousand times. But you have people from Buffalo, Beverly Johnson, Grover Washington, Rick James, um, Frankie Crocker, Scoey Mitchell, Ina Hartman, I could go on, Jerry, Jerry Bledsoe, Gary Bird. I mean, these are national people that uh, people would come to see that. Yeah, right. You know, you got people on that wall who nobody knows. Mm-hmm. You, know, you want to honor somebody from the 1700s, fine. You know, but all it is after that first day, it's nothing. Right. You know, I mean, that's my little gripe about it. Great wall, great art. Sure. You know, but hey, when are you going to start? paying attention to people from Buffalo. And the reason I said five blocks, these people, Bob Lanier, Beverly Johnson, we grew up two blocks down the street. Grover Washington graduate uh, uh, grew up about three or four blocks on Glenwood from that wall. We grew up two blocks from the wall. Bob Lanier, five blocks. Luke Easter, five blocks. Beverly Johnson, five blocks. Scoey Mitchell, five blocks, within five blocks. Frankie Crocker, and I mean, these are people who grew up right there, yeah. who probably stood on that same corner. So, you know, you have somebody, you put something up there, now you got one a one-day splash. Yeah. You know, you can walk down the street and ask people, who is on that, who's on there? I bet you nine out of ten times, nobody will know anybody on that wall. Oh, there, Rick. No, Rick's not on the wall. Well, Rick's not even on there? He's not even on there. I there's there's a there's a building somewhere there's a mural of him. I got I think it's on Peterowski. I'm saying that wrong. I've heard about that, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, we'll 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 get a picture. We'll get Yeah, I think I've we seen got it. guys that work yeah. down there. We'll get a picture for yeah. you. But I just can't believe there's not a statue for Rick. We're going to we're going to thump on that. We'll get we'll get yeah, the area. Like you know, I would have done it myself, but I don't think that uh, I think but I shouldn't have to do that. No, you shouldn't. Okay, the, you know. the fans and you know, the, funk the leaders, the Funk Fest guys, yeah. yeah. The Funk Festival, they do a, a great job every year putting that, you know, honoring um, not only Rick, but other funk artists. Uh, Dyke yeah. and the Blazers. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Uh, the Blazers? Dyke and the Blazers. They were the very first funk group. Really? 
From we'll have to check them out. They're yeah. from Buffalo, huh? Yeah. You guys are touring and doing all the things, and then that ends. What was your exit from the business with your brother? Well, um, two minutes moving back and forth. We moved from L.A. to Buffalo, and then we're not here a month, and then they moved. He decided he's going to move back. I said, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I think it's time that I, you know, start doing something else. You know, I'm doing for you. I'm going to do for me. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did is open up a nightclub. That was the very first thing I did. <laughs> it turned out to be a great success, great marketing tool. It didn't last long, but did what it was supposed to do. Uh, then I started practicing law. At the same time, I was doing art and got involved with a lot of community-oriented um, uh, uh, um, boards and that sort of thing. Um, and then that's where I'm, I am now. Sinking I've, your teeth into the buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Being someplace. And that's right around the time where Hammer samples the music. And are you dealing with that? I had actually dealt with that before I left. Before uh, you left. Yeah, okay. That, that's an interesting story also. Um, I'd asked Rick to, um, let's sample our own music. And because yeah, this is what the rappers are doing. They're sampling everybody's music. And at the time, James Brown was the leading sampler. Yeah. And so I talked with um, our publicists about... Um, how to get us into more, uh, uh, more of the rap music. And I said, we have to market it. We got we to gotta go to the producers. We got to go to the, um, the artists and, and tell them, look, one, you know, a hit is always a hit. Sample this. So we started that. And we had a lot of success with L Cool J, uh, EPMD, um, number of groups. Uh, and their songs are number one songs. You know, if you go out, if you look up there, you'll see that uh, Rick was probably the most sampled artist. Yeah. But it really hit when it hit with MC. MC wasn't as big at that particular time. But uh, the, the my publicist said that uh, MC was looking to sample certain music. I said, well, push, give him whatever deal he wants, as long as it's a good deal. Push us. And Rick had said, look, I don't want to do it. Let the, the rappers do it. So. Because he he's a he said he didn't want to do it. But the the money is in you doing it, not in the rappers doing it. You you know right. you get seven cents on the dollar, they get um, three dollars. We get seven cents on the album, they get uh, three dollars or whatever their deal is on the album. He sold thirty million albums, so I mean you're talking about if he had a good the deal, I think he did, probably making close to three hundred million. Uh, not three hundred, but a hundred million dollars. Probably made so his it. tune changed real quick when that, that yeah check when he started came. getting the royalty check. But that I said to him that that's nothing, you know. He probably made about a million dollars off that. That's nothing, right? You're making a million. He made a hundred million. Yeah, that's nothing. So um, at first he was a little very disturbed about it, but you can't be disturbed when somebody's playing your music and it's and it's killing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, people start saying he stole it, and then Rick start enforcing that and then it it, it worked yeah it kept, he, he uh, played kept, himself good on that yeah, yeah. kept us out there so um so i think just on that record alone uh, we would probably qualify as as one of the biggest of all time uh, and, and then he's messing around it he's partying all the time with eddie murphy uh, with yeah. that song yeah. and it, that's great in a video where he i mean yeah. no offense but it's a little cheesy but <laughs> It's to- it's a totally cheesy <laughs> record that anybody could have done, but had to have Eddie Murphy do it. 
and to sell about three million, at least three million copies. And they did it here, right? Yeah, they did it here. It was great. Caught, <laughs> caught in a blizzard. Yeah, yeah. He and Charlie and Eddie and the rest of them. Yeah. You know. Well, you bring up Charlie. Everyone yeah. wants to know. So he's like a big yeah. rock god, and then he's a pop culture phenomenon. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting that when you do little things for for people and uh, comes back. You know, uh, Charlie was always secondary in, 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 in Eddie's life. But Charlie, to me, is, is, is a mega person, was a mega person, and with mega talent. And yeah. um, uh, just one little thing that he did with, with uh, uh, Dave Chappelle, skyrocketed them both. I mean, that was the number one almost video sold of all time. Oh, yeah. And he just told that story so well. Yeah. Of course, Rick said that, you know, you think I let Charlie Murphy kick me in my stomach like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy. <laughs> but, Did Rick uh, like it? Rick loved it. We laughed on the phone when it came out. We sat there <laughs> and um, he said, oh, you think it's funny? I said, man, uh, Dave Chappelle played you better than you. <laughs> and the only comment he could make was that, you think I let Charlie Murphy kick me in my stomach? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Into a wall. <laughs> yeah, right. So I. Yeah. Uh, it's good to hear that he loved that he. It was yeah, like, yeah, he was, uh, yeah. He was always he around, exaggerated huh? a little bit, but uh, what's well, a good story? Him. Yeah, you know. But I loved when they smacked him, Charlie, in the face, and his expression. Man, I had so much respect for Rick until he smacked me. <laughs> it was on now. It's on. <laughs> and he was always around, huh? Yeah, he was all he was around a lot. Yeah, of course. It, you know, he would come around with. Uh, I remember when he first got out to service, and uh, he was backstage. At, at, we were doing something at the Apollo, and uh, this guy comes back there, and he says, um, "You know, I, you know, I want to get in to see Rick." I'm looking at this guy. I said, well, "Who are you?" He says, "I'm Charlie Murphy." I didn't know him at the time, and I was like, "You certainly are." He says, uh, "Who's your brother?" He's looking at me, looking just like that, like Eddie's. You know who my brother is. I said, okay, come on. <laughs> well, that was my first time meeting him. And then after that, I saw him many, many times. <coughs> I saw him just before he died in New York. Um, sad. Yeah, I seen him at the Helium when he was here. Yeah, he was I, great. I was there also, yeah. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, Great storyteller. Uh, do you stay connected to the music scene and like who are the big artists now that you see around in Buffalo? You know the very talented guys that we well, wouldn't hear of. Of course, there's always the guys who were with us. They still, they're still just as good. Yeah. Kenny Hawkins and Jerry Livingston and those guys. And um, I love what the Buffalo Music Hall of Fame is doing and the people associated with that. There's a lot of talent here. A lot of young talent i don't know them all because you know I, I, mm -hmm. I don't stay but they come to my office every now and then we sit down and I listen to the music and i just hear so many people who are really talented come through great singers mm -hmm. male and female great musicians writers um i give them whatever advice i can give them and uh yeah, there's a guy, uh, Griffin Brady. I don't know if he's come across your radar, but he has a thing called the Sly Boots School of Music, and it's an African drum uh, school, and he travels. He brings a group in from Ghana every year, and they travel the colleges, and it's right out here out of Buffalo. Oh, okay, good. And like you said, like that's how Rick yeah. you know, uh, got into it. So you know, Malcolm and I did something very similar. He, he would bring in Olatunji, who was one of the greatest oh, African yeah. drummers, um, and he would bring his dance troops in. 
And so all of that uh, played into our theater uh, on stage. Okay. Uh, we used a lot of the concepts that uh, Olatunji the dancers and that during our production. So, I mean, you, you know, you, you don't really think that you're going to use these things, but uh, you, you ultimately do use them in, in whatever you might be doing. Where did that big doobie come from? Which one? <laughs> the one that you had on stage. The doobie? What do you mean? The uh, joint. The joint? Yeah. How did that come about? <laughs> Maybe some Jamaican left it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Mon, I think when we were in uh, Jamaica playing that, that was, uh, <laughs> we brought it back with us. <laughs> And, yeah, you're involved uh, with uh, some things here in Buffalo, the yeah, let's uh, talk Willie about Hutch those. Jones. Uh, okay, yeah, that's my, my favorite group um, because it works with kids. It gives kids the opportunity to have mentors, and um, Willie's a great mentor, and the whole staff has been great. Uh, we started out with uh, one program, basketball. Now we have about 18 different programs, and we, we service sometimes 500 people a week. Uh, we just finished a science program at the Birchfield Penny of – Hutch is just a fabulous person. I mean, there's uh, he's dedicated former former NBA player um, with the Lakers. He's dedicated uh, part of his life to uh, helping kids with this program. The other part is that he's a uh, Buffalo public school teacher and um, coach. So um, we've got 35 years doing this. Our program has been around offering free pro programs for kids for 35 years. That's great. Yeah, I've experienced this program. I worked uh, at the Magnica center and they were great. You know, and the amount of kids that actually latch on to this program and show up, it's incredible. Yeah. If you yeah. ever need our help with anything, great. let us know. Yeah. That's yeah. A, it will spread. It's the word. my favorite program. It's um, you know, if you start off something good uh, and you do it right, it lasts. And, right. and this is a great example of that because it's been around 35 years and we've grown, as I said, from basketball, we have swimming, tennis, soccer, uh, volleyball, um, chess, uh, science programs. We're, we're sponsored by uh, General Motors, by um, uh, M&T Bank, uh, Key Bank, Five Star Bank, Evans, um, Tops. Um, Oh, you know, we've we've um, we just come so uh, you know we used to go into our own pockets and and do this, and now we have a support from the city also in the county. That's great. Um, if anybody missed, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something. Me working, uh, you know, with the youth, like in basketball and, and incorporating other sports, because a lot of kids think basketball's life. That's it. You know, but when you're looking at these kids play, you're like. You're the fastest guy out here. There's a spot on the track team for you. They don't realize the outlets. You know, maybe I'm not the best basketball player, but I do something the best on yeah, this court. Yeah. And you know, and well, I, I, I always like to see the what's important. Yeah, yeah, for people to yeah. see that. You know, because you're like, man, you are the fastest kid, and maybe you're not going to make it on the basketball court. But I just wish somebody could mm -hmm. put you over into that. You know, and that's a good thing that with Willie Hutch, if you're bringing other, we've sports. even had kids with the West Side rowing. And we've had kids who uh, went there for years who got college scholarships for rowing scholarships. So, I mean, it, it's really exciting. And, and uh, the reason we're doing it is because these are kinds of uh, programs that, uh, that I had and we had at Hutch when we were growing up. And all that funding dried up. So we started 35 years ago to, um, to do these programs ourselves. Uh, uh, and reach as many people as we can. And during the summer, we usually reach about 500 people a week. 
So, uh, and if you count that up uh, over 35 years, you got uh, probably over 15,000 graduates of the program. Good for you. Good for you, Leroy. Now, we've seen some art. We'll, we'll put it up on our social media. Where can we see your art this summer, this spring? Well, um, I wish I could say it was here, but it's not. Okay. I have, um, uh, starting next month, I start in, um, in New York. And I go from New York to Singapore and from Singapore to London. And then uh, I believe Toronto and, and Korea. So When are um, you in New York? I'm in New York on the 25th, April 25th through the 27th. And then I leave for Singapore on the 29th. And I'm in Singapore from May 2nd through, I think, the 8th. Well, wear your license to hat talk in Asia. We're big in Asia oh, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Singapore? Yeah. Oh, who knows? Who yeah. knows? Okay. Far East well, hey, loves yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. What would you say that your uh, inspiration is for your art that you have right now? Well, you, uh, a lot of my inspiration now, um, <clears throat> it's interesting. Because this, this last show, the, the last shows that I'm doing, um, usually I'm not the curator of my own art, but these, these I am. So I kind of retrofitted myself. I, I took, went back um, to some of my old imagery, which I called Colored People and the Colored People series. Um, and Colored People is, is really, uh, it's not the old name that people used to call black people, colored people, black negroes, not that. It's, it's now it's all people are colored because everybody has some color in them. And with this whole DNA thing, you see that now that you, you you're, you're from everywhere, you know, and that and that's the whole point that that everybody is, um, is is a mixture of everything. However, a lot of people are masked, and you have to take these masks off off of them and get to the real person. So I kind of play on a, on a, a couple double themes, and then I'll do something that's contemporary and primitive at the same time. I'll uh, show how things in the past are still things that are going on now. Uh, and uh, I'll do that kind of mix, but my I, my work is known for being very colorful and uh, very primitive, very unique. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, uh, I always feel that uh, there's um, if you look outside, there's no organization of color. You know, colors wherever it is. So, you know, colors are everywhere. It's just how you know, have a sense of color that I, you know I just like. Your, your primary colors and um, your fluorescence, I like that. And uh, I try to add those into things. Uh, and the story behind it is usually there's something royal about the colors and something regal about the golds and, and those kinds of things. You know, I usually have halos and uh, around crooks, you know, because there's, there's a little good in every crook, just, just a little bit. Ain't that the fact? <laughs> well, Leroy, we want to thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're a very interesting person, and that's what we like to do, the interesting people of Buffalo. Okay. You are uh, cold-blooded and hey. below, <laughs> below the funk. And I made the top 20. And yeah. you made the top 20. Yeah. All right, Johnson, you are now licensed to talk. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Ben, licensed to talk. Find our most recent episode on our website at www.jcisl2t.com.